Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that the only thing when you asked for an ice lolly that was more disappointing than the Lions Bay Cola Smash was a Lions Bay Black Currant Smash. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, and no one's ever seemed to, is sports writer Carrie Dunn. Carrie, what are you up to? Where can we find it? Mostly I'm on Twitter just all the time at the moment because there's not a great deal of sport happening. So uh, just tweet <laughs> me at Carrie Sparkle. Fair enough. Well, there's not much sport in your next choice, I have to say. Although actually there was in one or two sketches. This is a show that it's been mentioned on here before that this is burnt deep into my memory and the memories of several previous guests on here. So let's hear the theme song from it and see if it burns itself into your memory. by the glam metal detectives a record that i used to use at chucking out time in nightclubs when i was djing in the 90s to get people to actually leave carrie tell us more about them this is a kind of a bizarre little sketch show and i'll tell you something when i was kind of thinking about what i wanted to talk about tonight i remembered the song very very vividly and the song is still an absolute banger and then i rewatched some of the episodes and it's much more surreal than i remembered it as a teenager it's really odd funny but odd yeah it's kind of for anyone who's not seen it it's a weirdly ahead of its time sketch show where basically it's from the very kind of absolute dying embers of when the comic strip presents moved to bbc2 it got a bit strange they started to experiment more some of the ones they did there aren't very good but there's brilliant ones like detectives on the edge of a nervous breakdown but then they did this series which is sort of as we'll come back to with one of your later choices parodying something that hadn't really happened yet which is the high-speed channel surfing world and channels that most people probably hadn't seen at that point that's exactly it you watch it and it's so so 90s in some ways and it feels really modern in other ways so in terms of its format it reminded me a lot of you know watching you know kytv which i also watched around the same time it's kind of a little bit like the far show in terms of kind of the standalone sketches and the recurring characters but yeah it is basically formed on this idea that people are switching over channels a lot which i guess people were in the early days of satellite telly but obviously it's much more current now when people are kind of going through their different platforms all the time in different channels and the thing was well i mean we better probably say what some of the regular sketches were at this point which were the programs that the viewer whoever it was was supposed to be flipping between because there was betty's mad dad which is a kind of send-up of sort of 20s, you know, silent movie type serials, but with a really violent streak. Really violent, yeah. And this was on kind of at nine o'clock, so it was only just after the watershed, if I recall correctly. Yeah. And there was Blood Sports, which again was taking quite brutal things from real life with commentaries, if there were sports, you know, like ram raiding and so on. <laughs> the Big Me, which was a chat show presented by Doom McKeegan as a chat show host who didn't like to let the guests get a word in edgeways. He says talking over you laughing <laughs> Colin Corleone he was a bloke who just thought he was a gangster and he wasn't all kinds of like, spoof adverts and so on and the thing was like you say it's very 90s in a way but also it reminds me now of the sort of things that content wise were all over E4 about five years later <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. See, it's kind of trailblazing in a way. But yeah, another way, just bizarrely, bizarrely, very, very dated and just particularly of its time. And the very odd thing about it was BBC Two obviously thought it was going to be an absolute smash. People who weren't immersed in it to this extent won't really know. There were all kinds of things like they did the theme song on top of the pops. There was a single, there was an album, which is dreadful. Their version of Crazy Horses, just I shudder whenever I think of that. There was a VHS release of the first three episodes, I think. They never, as far as I know, brought out the others. There was a comic, Marvel UK comic, which ran for one issue with all the regular sketches in it as strips. And the impression that's out there is it was cancelled because the show wasn't very well received. But it was actually at the same time as Marvel UK was folded into Panini and a lot of their long-running titles were cancelled. And some newer titles as well, like there was a film magazine called Bizarre about cult films. There was Playback, which was about Archive TV. All of that just went. And the Glam Metal Detectives comic went with it. I wonder if some released issues out there. But they really went for it. And the public didn't go for it. I think the main thing to remember for now is in Fist of Fun, Lee and Herring are brutal about it all the time. <laughs> Possibly because they got the push and they didn't. But that's its contribution to history, really. Yeah, I mean, it really did get the push. I mean, if you, if you look back on the top of the Pops appearance, it, it is incredible. And I hadn't realised until I was preparing to come and talk to you, who wrote that theme song? Trevor Horn and Lowell Crame. Yes, yeah, with guitar by Jeff Beck as My well. goodness. Also, you watch back and lots of, kind of the smaller characters, you kind of recognise them from other stuff, which obviously happens all the time, but I keep recognising them from Red Dwarf particularly. It's kind of this BBC... Yes, Matt McDonald's <laughs> in it, yeah. It's a BBC Two comedy actors. They have them in rep, just kept in a wardrobe somewhere. <laughs> The really weird thing for me, though, was I remember a number of years ago, I was talking to my friend Roxanne, who's a couple of years younger than me, but, you know, at that stage in your life, that makes all the difference. Whereas to me, the glam metal detectives was a bit, this is style over substance, this is all over the hype, it doesn't really match up to the claims they're making for it. And to her, she couldn't even remember the name of it. She described it really excitedly to me as something that was her programme that she's allowed to stay up for, was this really weird channel surfing thing. It is interesting to think that when you don't have those preconceptions, formed in your mind of what something's supposed to be and you know what else is going on around it you can latch on to things that maybe you wouldn't do if you were slightly older and a bit more cynical yeah I mean I think I probably fall between you and Roxanne in age because I kind of always remembered it just from the uh, repeated line in the glam metal detective sketches itself funk and justice for all and I just <laughs> thought that was amazing when I was 15 <laughs> that's what I really really remember about it do you miss it though would you like to because it's one of the things that's never resurfaced from the 90s in any form in fact it's very hard to it is on places like youtube but it's very hard to get hold of it in a you know a tangible sense and for a long time there's nothing of it out there do you think it deserves bringing back from the archives i'm kind of torn on that because obviously i would like to see things that i enjoyed be enjoyed by other people too but at the same time it just kind of feels so very very 1995 that perhaps it ought to stay there i think that's possibly the most damning thing you could have to say about <laughs> 1995 was brilliant, all right? <laughs> well, I don't know if you're going to say about your next choice, because we're jumping back to something that's not really so 1995 or so 1989, as far as I'm concerned. Yesterday, I was shown, life was just like a dream, but it just goes to show.
my link there. That was Handful of Promises by Big Fun, which I've just realised is actually from January 1990. <laughs> so, Carrie, who are these guys? They were one of the first kind of Stock Aitken and Waterman boy bands that they were really pushing in the late 80s. So Jason, Mark and Phil. And they did a cover of Blame It on the Boogie and the wonderful Handful of Promises that you just shared with the listeners. They did Can't Shake Feeling. They covered I Feel the Earth Move. And I really, really loved them. I had a massive poster of these guys on my wall. And obviously it wasn't until kind of like 10, 15 years later that I realised that these guys were really being pushed to the gay market and they were all kind of like from the dance scene in the 80s and they were very kind of uh, how best to describe I guess guess choreographed the very very manufactured and they gave adorable interviews and smash hits which I was just starting to buy I guess in the late 80s and yes they are a hugely underrated boy band of the late 80s because I think people just think of them as just a Stock Aitken and Waterman conveyor belt product and they get overshadowed by you know Kylie and Jason all that lot from the late 80s but yeah massively underrated poor big fun well I think they've been done a disservice by history in the sense that like you say you know, when you look back they were very obviously themselves were very obviously gay were obviously being targeted at the gay market as you say they have been involved with 7th Avenue who were a high energy band produced by Ian Levine who's a name that will be causing all the Doctor Who fans <laughs> listening to roll about on the floor laughing we won't go down that road but I remember even at the time thinking you know because when Take That first appeared for the first couple of singles they had a very different image mm. they were pursuing a very different market i remember thinking that's just big fun with more people <laughs> genuinely there's a straight line you can draw between big fun and do what you like promises here and take that and then suddenly take that thought hang on this isn't working and change direction that's when they got successful but there's that weird stretch of over six months i think where they were a bit of a joke really and they were just carrying on the big fun thing yeah that kind of prediction yeah. got all the credit from history for it yeah although i would never have imagined big fun doing the kind of videos that take that did very early on when take that were going very clearly for the gay market so if i recall correctly big fun weren't supposed to talk about their sexuality it was all just kind of very implied whereas i think take that were being quite overtly being marketed at a particular audience when they first started. Well, and also the contrast would be Take That wore very little clothes when they first appeared, whereas if anything, Big Fun wore too many clothes. They wore nice My memory of them suits. is of them having about eight hoodies on all at once. <laughs> yeah, they're matching tracksuits, they're matching hoodies. Oh, oh, it's adorable. And the thing is, they were very big for a very short space of time. And part of it is due to the... It was half a backlash against Stock Aitken and the Waterman, because, you know, as much as the critics hated them the record buying public liked them but their sounds started to get a bit samey I know that's a strange thing to say about Stock Aitken and the Waterman but genuinely if you listen to their music properly there's a lot more variance early on than you get kind of from about late 1988 onwards they themselves were getting a bit tired of it they were trying to do a harder sound with things like Handful of Promises like the Lonnie Gordon singles and so on where it was like they're trying to get credibility from I suppose from the what became the rave scene really and it didn't quite work but equally Big Fun kind of ran out of marketable songs because I Feel the Earth Move which you mentioned was going to be a single and then the Martika one came yeah. out which is let's be honest is actually better I'm not doing down the Big Fun one there but that is 
probably the superior version. Then they did You've Got a Friend with Sonya, which isn't really much of a song to begin with, and it was given a very anodyne arrangement, and I shouldn't really say this, but it was a childline tie-in, so it has Esther Ranson all over the promotion, <laughs> which I don't think, bless her, but it does not help a pop single's chances. And then they did the ballad Hey There Lonely Girl, which I remember them doing on variety shows all over the place, and it bombed. Yeah, it was an odd choice of repertoire, I have to say. I mean, obviously, they were going down some kind of Carol King route, and I'm not sure why. You've got a friend. I like it as a song, actually, but you have to have a kind of... You can't do it without the right kind of sincerity, and I think that if you are plastering Esther Ranson all over it, and you're going for that kind of charity performance of that song, it just becomes a little bit over-egged. So, again, it wasn't really what Big Fun were intended to be. No, and they did sort of disappear really quickly as well, to the extent of, isn't there one of them where nobody really knows what happened to him? I think Phil became a designer, didn't he? It must be Mark, nobody knows anyone, because Jason was quite a successful manager. For yeah, he was. He went into management, which is very interesting, the poacher turned gamekeeper thing. Yeah, Phil went into interior design, I believe, and yeah, I don't think that anyone knows what happened to Mark, and I guess it's quite good for his anonymity that, you know, Mark Gillespie is a fairly generic name. There'd be plenty of other people of his, his name and age. People won't be a track him down and ask him annoying questions. But I'm going to hazard a guess that you will know about this. Did you know what their attempted mid-90s comeback? Yes. Big Fun 2. As Big yes. Fun 2, yes. <laughs> Again, that's kind of sweet because they didn't want to. They, they couldn't pretend to be the original Big Fun because Jason wasn't there. So they were just letting you know that there was a second version. Imagine if the Sugar Babes had done that. So do you still listen to Big Fun? I do actually, and I will tell you particularly for why. On my Spotify, I have my '80s running playlist that I listen to that gets me through running half marathons. And of course, Big Fun remain one of my favourites. And who was your favourite member of Big Fun? Oh, it was Mark. <laughs> Was Mark your favourite in Take That as well? Are we drawing a line here? No, I was never into Take That. And again, I think this is kind of the era crossover. When Big Fun were around, as I was saying, I was kind of too young to realise they weren't being really aimed at me as a a small girl at the time. Take That were being very deliberately targeted to me by the mid-90s, and I don't like being told what to do by that point, obviously. And so I didn't listen to them. (laughs) Funnily enough, speaking of things being targeted at people, that does come up in something that I found out about your next choice which i know this song very well but i'm guessing there's a lot of people out there who know a lot of related songs of this who will never have heard it before Patricia Quinn and Little Nell with the theme from Shock Treatment. Now, I'm really familiar with Shock Treatment. 
probably a lot of people aren't. Carrie, what is it and how did you discover it? Shock Treatment is a, not necessarily a sequel, but a parallel to the Rocky Horror Show, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And it has Janet and Brad. They are married. And so this is after the events of the Rocky Horror Show. It's still got Richard O'Brien and it's got Patricia Quinn, who were Riff Raff and Magenta in the Rocky Horror Show. But it's all about mind control and television and the power of the media and scary media moguls and this one's called Farley Flavors the same actor plays Brad and Farley Flavors and yeah it's really odd and it's incredible and it got pretty much no attention it's become a bit of a cult hit and it actually recently had a stage adaptation which kind of renewed my love for it because I first kind of found out about it when I first became obsessed with the Rocky Horror Show the actual theatre show rather than the film and I would go to the stage productions and I would do the dressing up and the shout outs and that kind of thing. One of my closest friends now uh, was Brad on a UK tour of the Rocky Horror Show for a very long time so that's quite a cool thing. It's this odd follow-up to the Rocky Horror Show that has some really fascinating things to say about the power the media can have over one's life and this was made in 1981 so again a bit like we were saying before about the glam metal detectives it's something that's very very rooted in its time in some ways but in other ways it just seems bang up to date absolutely I mean that was one of the reasons it didn't do too well I mean I think the other reason is it came out in 1981 it's a kind of film that was tailor made the home video which didn't exist yet had it been a couple of years later it probably would have been a big underground smash with all people renting videos for the first time and so on we just sort of came and went but the other thing is like you say it was ahead of its time in what it was looking at and actually recently I interviewed Richard Hartley who was the co-writer of this and the Rocky Horror Show with Richard O'Brien for Doctor Who magazine because he did some music for Doctor Who in the mid 80s and there's a whole fascinating story about the BBC lost the original tapes of his music and when they came to release on Blu-ray he'd only just got rid of his old analogue synths and he had to recreate these scores from nowhere and instruments he didn't have anymore but I asked him you know about a lot of his other projects and he felt that the problem at the time with shock treatment was whereas with the Rocky Horror Show they were looking backwards Mm. and everyone could recognise the archetypes in it everyone sort of knew about old sci-fi films and rock and roll and so on with this they were looking forwards and he said it hadn't occurred to him that you know people couldn't see into the future and get what they were trying to angle at yeah and that's why it has taken on cult status in later years because i think it's only within the past 10 years but there have been things like you say there was the stage revival the film's been re-evaluated a while back i went to see the rocky horror show with previous guests emma burnell and shanine salmon and there were people there dressed as shock treatment characters which i don't think would have happened even not that long ago so we are in shock treatment's world now and it's that we've caught up with it i think yeah yeah the stage show adaptation I thought actually made some real improvements to the source material in that they really kind of went with the reality TV side of things. The stage show isn't going to be on again anytime soon, so I can give you a spoiler for the end. Ralph Hapshat ends up basically risking his life because he wants to be on TV so much. And when you see what you know what we've seen with reality TV shows and contestants in recent months, recent years, you kind of think this is something that actually does speak to our times. It's not kind of yeah. a sci-fi schlock thing. It's something 
that it has a very serious message. Absolutely, yeah. But at the time it came out, there was quite a negative reaction to it. As I was alluding to before, one of the things I found was when Roger Ebert, the legendary film critic, reviewed it, his big warning about it was that he felt that Rocky Horror fans weren't going to like it because cult fan bases don't like things that are tailored specifically towards them because they kind of, they don't get to feel that sense of ownership they did over the original. Yeah. And they feel like they're being sold to a bit. I can say with some things I'm a noted fan of, you can tell when something's, you know, designed to make you get your wallet out rather than something's done because it's a good idea. I'm not accusing shot treatment of that, but the film is kind of trying to basically come off the back of the Rocky Horror Picture Show and it doesn't quite come off for that reason and it works better in other contexts. But one of the strange things about the film is some of the casting. I mean, Rick Mayles in it very early on. Yes, Rick Mayles, he, he's in it. Sunita is in it. Sunita! Yes! Sunita! <laughs> and also, do you know much about the guy who plays Brad, Clifty Young? I know little bits and pieces about him. He did a lot of Broadway work, which is how I know who he was. Well, also, in the late 60s, he was a band called Clear Light, who were kind of like a second division West Coast band. They were kind of, if you think of Britpop, they were probably Sleeper to Blur and Oasis, but quite often, if you see a, a low-budget late 60s film, and there's a scene where they encounter some hippies in a happening, it's quite often clear light playing in the background <laughs> and that's how he got into movies was through being in abandoned movies and to me it's just always been that's the guy from clear light <laughs> that's a weird frame of reference to have given that you know obviously i don't remember clear light from the time but that just always leaps out at me well also barry humphreys dame edna isn't it obviously not as dame edna ruby wax Lots of people you can spot again. And I'm kind of interested in this idea about kind of it not being intended to... I, d- I don't think Shock Treatment was ever intended to be kind of a necessarily piggybacking on the back of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Because if they were, I don't think they'd have gone with the mental illness, psychological treatment, pop star diva, reality TV, horrifying kind of storyline. It's very off-beam. Whereas, I guess for the Rocky Horror Picture Show, that is ultimately about sex and desire. Whereas Shock Treatment is much darker i guess yeah and i think you are right it does reflect things that you know the way things have gone more recently i mean the thing it calls to mind for me the most is do you remember on the word that segment the hopefuls the i'll do anything to get on tv yes i do it makes me think of that a lot yeah and that's really where everything that's happened since kind of started with that was anyone doesn't remember it was literally people would drink i don't know vomit and things like that say i'll do anything to get on tv yeah and it was sheerly exploiting their desire to exploit the media it's all a horrible vicious circle really yeah i think basically what we're saying is that richard o'brien was a seer he knew things that we did could not possibly know in 1981 and he knew all and yet do you think he saw the crystal maze coming when he did this <laughs> or being gulnar and robin the sherwood because they were the two things he did next <laughs> i don't think anyone could have predicted the crystal maze because I, I still don't think anyone knew quite what was going on even when they were there so i take it you actually saw the stage revival then? Yes, I saw it um, a couple of times. First off, the guy playing Farley Flavors was Mark Little of Joe Mangle fame. Can't sing at all, by the way. Can't sing a single note. But it was really interesting to see the additional undercurrents to this storyline when your media mogul is an Australian trying to manipulate the rest of the world into doing what he wants. Okay, well that might be a musical you enjoy, but your next choice, I've not been able to find a clip from this anywhere, so I don't know what I'm going to use here. It's probably going to be some 60s pop record about the sun probably but this sounds like it's a musical you very much did not enjoy he chose to die 
I don't know what I've put there, but it's represent <laughs> Too Close to the Sun, a 2009 West End musical. Carrie, you sound like you don't want to talk about it, but please do. Well, I feel like I ought to. I feel like this is therapy because nobody has let me talk about this in 11 years. So this ran for about 10 days, literally about 10 days at the Comedy Theatre. As you may have guessed by now, I really love musical theatre. Absolutely love it. Always have done. And so I'm always really interested when there's a new musical out because, you know, Lots of the West End theatres have been taken up with you know, the same old long runners, say Phantom and Les Mis and all that stuff, which are great, but it's nice to see new things. So I went along to see Too Close to the Sun and it was not selling a lot of tickets. So there are a handful of people in the stalls. This is a musical about the last week in the life of Ernest Hemingway, which is an interesting idea. It's got Ernest, it's got his wife, and then two entirely made up characters, an old school friend, who wants him to kind of sign all his rights away to him so he can capitalise on it. And a New York secretary who's like his personal assistant who seems to want to kind of get Ernest Hemingway to sleep with her. We're not really quite sure. She doesn't really have a lot of character development. So it's this four-hander and basically it's all leading up to Hemingway's suicide. <laughs> this is the climax of your musical, this gunshot. Um, they're singing these songs about what it's like to feel the taste of a gun in your mouth. The secretary girl is talking about um, New York being the cityest of cities which is one of the lyrics I remember because it makes no sense. Yes, it was this just hideous, hideous musical ending with Hemingway dying. And one of the interesting things about it was Jay Benedict, who recently passed away, was originally cast as the old school friend of Hemingway. And he dropped out of the show with a knee injury uh, shortly before this show opened. Now, whether or not he had a knee injury, I'm not sure, but it was certainly <laughs> the right decision not to be in it. I was fascinated to know what Jay Benedict's experience of this show had been. And I'd also written a rather caustic blog about this terrible, terrible script and terrible, terrible musical, terrible, terrible acting just before I'd emailed him. So I got in touch with him through his official website. And I got a very nice email back from the lady who handled his uh, website at the time with a personal PS from Jay Benedict saying, I thought your piece was very funny, even from where I'm standing or perhaps especially from where I'm standing. So, yeah, this terrible show that no one saw because it was just in the West End for these 10 days and no one was buying tickets anyway. It was dreadful, so no one's ever going to revive it. And as you've quite rightly noted, there are no recordings of it. It has not been kept no. posterity. Not even photos out there. It's <laughs> disappeared. And the thing that really struck me about it was the whole thing about, you know, about it being a musical about Hemingway and it was terrible. And it was a bad idea from the beginning and it was really negative reviewed and it closed early and so on it's like a plot line from a sitcom like Arrested Development 
But this is 2009. This was after all those sitcoms had done those storylines. Yeah. Why did anyone think it was going to work? I just can't. I appreciate I've not seen it and I know nothing about it. And not, I can't find out anything about it because it's just disappeared from history. But did anyone involved really think it was going to take the world by storm? Well, as I understand it, the creative team behind it basically paid to put it on themselves. They weren't kind of, they didn't have a lot of investors. So, you know, it's probably good, a good thing because they would have lost a lot of money. And they had previously done a production of The Man in the Iron Mask, which was also terrible and also ran for a very, very short time. So I don't know what they're up to now. As far as I know, it's not musicals. So, you know, hooray for that. I just don't have much more to add here because I don't know much about musicals, but I like to think I can spot a hit one when I'm confronted with it. And I'm not spotting one now. It would not tempt me to go and see a musical with someone say, oh, it's about Ernest Hemingway. I'm like, okay. And he kills himself at the end. This is it. You kind of know how Hemingway's life story is going to end. And also, he's not a very nice man. So what are you kind of going to look forward to in that two hours? Nothing. It makes me think of, do you remember Guy Gomer? Yes. Yes, who was the man who he went to the BBC BBC for a job interview and ended up on BBC News being interviewed. I mean, this just goes to show the transience of fame. At the end of that year, he turned up on Big Fat Quiz of the Year on Channel 4 as a can you remember who this was? As Russell Brand and Noel Fielding were one of the teams. And Noel Fielding said, yeah, I know who that is. It's the man we met in the corridor. <laughs> and then after they revealed who it was, Jimmy Carr said, and they're making a film about the incident, aren't they? <laughs> Noel Fielding said, can I play myself in the bit where I met you in the corridor? <laughs> and that was kind of, it was both funny and incredibly damning about the whole process of making a film about something that doesn't really warrant a film. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I appreciate this was a musical, which is perhaps worse in some ways. Yeah, you're trying to write melodies about Hem- Hemingway's suicide. I just don't think it's something that... Were the songs any good? No, they, they were terrible. They were really, really <laughs> bad songs and terrible lyrics. I remember Hemingway's wife singing about blue cheese bites at one point because she was making Ernest Hemingway a load of food that he liked to try and lure... <laughs> That's like a riveting scene. She was trying to lure him away from his alcoholism with cooking him nice food or or something. I don't know. Everything about this is more and more ridiculous the more that comes out about it. It it was so ludicrous. And it's kind of ludicrous in an almost joyous way. There was kind of like, this was kind of really before Twitter really took off. So it's kind of like people on theatre message boards and blogs and stuff. And it's like we had our own little kind of support group. I remember meeting up with a couple of people at a different show because they had been at a different performance of Too Close to the Sun. We met up at the interval and we talked about this horrendous show we had seen. Almost as this kind of support group that we had to have to get through having seen this hideousness. And yet it's only 10 years ago and nothing of it is out there. No, no, it's very odd. I mean, normally you would have a kind of electronic press kit. So you'd have like a clip or at least at least some kind of stills of the show, production shots that they'd use to advertise. But no, nothing. When I think of theatre shows where nothing remains of them, you think of the 50s and the 60s, you think things like Mrs. Wilson's Diary, the Private Eye musical, where there's only the soundtrack album. I don't think I've ever even seen a photo from that. Things that were staged, like Curse of the Daleks, the Dalek play, where there's very little evidence of that left. You think of that as, you know, the olden days. But as recently as that, well, that said 
probably somebody did record a full cast soundtrack album of this and then thought, do you know what? We'd better not put that out. Yeah, I don't think it would have sold many copies. And also, now I'm talking, I seem to recall that they actually sold off bits of the set and costume on eBay not long after it closed, obviously looking to recoup some of the losses. Sorry, just say that again. <laughs> I did say it keeps getting more and more ridiculous. But... Yeah, I honestly think that's what happened. I'm going to have to look it up because I seem to recall some people that I know getting hold of one of the parts of the set. They were flogging off bits of the set and costume so they could recoup some of the losses. I can't, just can't add anything <laughs> any further to this. I'm so sad you didn't see I would. I would like to see it again. <laughs> just because I am fascinated to know what a different cast and perhaps a slightly more experienced production team might make of it. I want to know whether there's anything decent in there that could be reclaimed, I guess. And if it can't, then it would be a fantastic late night campy send up kind of musical that people would go along to get very, very drunk and shout out some of the terrible lyrics along with the actors. Okay, well, I'm quite sad that moving on to your next choice now, but we do know that it's at least got some decent music in it. Well, there it is. Look who's hogging the trophy. I still don't think you want it. Well, you can see it in the living room. No, Richard, don't take it. Mom says we're going to fill the whole place with awards someday. You maybe. Hey, listen. I've been taking piano lessons since I was 12 years old. If you'd find an instrument and stick to it, maybe we could be a team. Yeah, right. Why not? Because you're the one with all the talent. I know. Doesn't it bug you? Ha ha, very funny. Okay, that was in inverted commas Richard Carpenter and Karen Carpenter talking in the Karen Carpenter story. Carrie, what was this? Oh my goodness. So this is a made-for-TV movie made about the life and career of Karen Carpenter. I rewatched it recently, and I will, t- <laughs> I will tell you how I rewatched this. Oh God. So my sister and I were obsessed with this film when we were kids because we just loved the Carpenters because we were quite odd, nerdy kids, and we saw it on it must have been channel four it sounds like the kind of thing would have been channel four in the middle of the afternoon back in the day this is before channel five otherwise it would have definitely have been channel five and we taped it and we watched it all the time and obviously now we're grown-ups we don't have vhs's and i found a place that uh, had recorded the film off the television and dipped it onto dvd so my sister and i both have these dvds of the karen carpenter story and i rewatched it for the first time in a long while this weekend the film actually starts with her being rushed into hospital. Why do people keep structuring their things in such weird ways? Why is there so much death? I mean, I know what's going to happen. I don't need to see it. Anyway, so she's getting rushed through the hospital corridors and kind of Angel Karen is watching her. And then you go back to the start. So the Carpenters as children and the young Carpenters winning talent shows and signing their recording contracts and generally being fantastic and Karen getting thinner and thinner and Richard being addicted to drugs. And one of the things I love most about this TV movie is is that it was made with Richard Carpenter's um, full corporation. So he was there on set telling people what to do giving Cynthia Gibb, who plays Karen, Karen's clothes to wear, which I find really weird. It's crazy. Isn't it? It's much like I felt about the Torville and Dean docu-film The Other Christmas, in that it's got his full cooperation, and yet he still doesn't come across very well, in that he's massively egocentric. You know, hugely talented, so you know, he has something to be arrogant about. But even in this fictionalised dialogue where he's talking to his sister and he's clearly trying to present himself and his family in the best possible light, you kind of think you know where some of her problems might have come from. It's really, really 
sad. I just find the whole background so weird. Like you say, Richard was involved and apparently he toned down a lot of the scenes depicting her worst excesses and I'm door pierce as well like he put in the scene where he falls down the stairs on drugs which didn't actually happen and i think the only context to explain it was are you aware of superstar the karen carpenter story yes from 1987 right for anyone who's not seen it it's an early film by todd haynes where basically it tells a very kind of nasty dirty sleazy version of the karen carpenter story using it's widely credited to Barbie dolls. I think they're just cheap dolls. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think know he went as far as buying a Barbie. Yeah. Hardly anyone's seen it because I think, I could be wrong about this, but I think Richard obtained the rights to it in court. That sounds right, distribution. yeah. And occasionally it surfaces online and immediately it's gone. I can only assume that it was motivated by that, kind of trying to present a, a nicer view of a very, not very nice story and ending up with a bit of a, weird mishmash in the middle yeah you know, I think you know when someone that young and that talented dies there's always kind of these ideas that you want to do a film about it because people will watch which is you know borne out by the fact we're talking about it now and yes I think the unauthorised versions that were, were swirling about meant the Carpenters had to have their hands forced I think to produce this kind of rather sanitised version of her life story but then you've also got things in it like when she gets married it hasn't got her husband's real name or anything because he was persona non grata and that was all a bit weird as well with her husband and the way their divorce was supposed to be going through when she was taken into hospital for the last time and yeah the way that Richard also rewrote some dialogue because he didn't think his mother was shown in the right light his mother played by Nurse Ratched so you know the casting wasn't great there lads <laughs> you know it's it's a, such a sad story and I think even watching it knowing all this stuff and knowing that it's this kind of sanitised version and Richard Carpenter has tried to erase some of of the stories within it it's always going to be quite an emotional watch and I still find that now I think when I watched it as a kid I was kind of bewildered that this pop star that I still listened to was so young and wasn't around anymore and now watching it back as an adult and both Karen and Richard as they were in 1982 83 were were younger than I am now you kind of also realise kind of how very young they were doing all this amazing amazing stuff in their careers the casting is quite odd as well because you've got playing Richard and Karen Mitchell Anderson and Cynthia Gibb you've already mentioned who appeared to be on the up at that point and then just did kind of TV movies and guest starring and things like Matlock yeah so they've had steady stable careers but this seems to have been their high point almost yeah I don't think either of them are bad actually I think they're they're both actually very good in this particularly in terms of some of the stuff they get presented with to work with but you know doing TV movies isn't isn't a bad career I don't think but Cynthia Gibb had been doing Fame hadn't she the TV show yeah she was in Fame she's also in Short Circuit too Mitchell Anderson was in well Space Camp and Jaws the Revenge which aren't exactly <laughs> high cinematic recommendations but even so you got a lot of these movies around then about kind of 60s and 70s American artists made for TV I mean there are loads of them but my two favourites are have you ever seen the Beach Boys one I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head no oh, I want to now though there are two spectacular bits in it one is the bit where they meet Charles Manson and there's almost like dialogue lines of dialogue along lines of who's that crazy freaky cat oh I think he's called Charles Manson. <laughs> 
<laughs> and the other is they deal with the whole of Smile, which is, you know, crucial to the entire story of the Beach Boys. You know, the year spent making this album that didn't come out because Brian basically went mad. And, you know, it defined the relationship in the band and the balance in the band from then on. And the warring between him and Mike Love, which continues to this day. And they represent that by Brian looking at a load of reels of tape in the studio with a quizzical look on his face. That's <laughs> that it. That's incredible. I'll have to look it up. And the other brilliant one is Daydream Believers, the Monkeys story, which, as a massive Monkeys fan, I will say they get it absolutely right. You know, they recreate the original auditions that have been described by the producers. They make an attempt to represent heads. They do everything like that. There's one terrible bit in it, though, where Davey goes back to Manchester to see his family. <laughs> right. Basically, he goes to the house and goes, Hello, Dad, it's me, Davey. I'm back. And, oh, it's me perishing son. <laughs> Basically like that. You know, they've got like a sunburst clock on the mantelpiece. There's flying ducks on the wall. Not quite, but you know, it's almost that. That just jars so badly with the rest of the film. Oh, goodness. It sounds like Daphne's brothers in Frasier. <laughs> it's not far off that. Let's be honest, Davy Jones invented that voice. <laughs> No two ways about that. But there are loads of these. There's a great Mammoth and the Papas one as well. They're not even so bad they're good. They're actually kind of good in a strange way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love stuff like this. I think and mostly, as you mentioned in the introduction, because of the music. I mean, even if the rest of it is terrible, you know you're going to get some good songs in there as well. Yeah, and at least there's a level of kind of, there's a quality threshold in these. There's a sense of responsibility in some ways because they try to, you know, present positive messages. There's showing the dark side of fame and so on. And that puts it completely odds with your last choice. <laughs> I love it. Well done. I'm just going to play a clip and I don't know what on earth we're going to say about this. Welcome back to this uh, cardboard jungle clearing we call Man Oh Man, where frankly with these Amazons in our audience tonight, anything in trousers is an endangered species. Now, of our eight confident men, why are we staring at each other like that? Of our eight confident men standing here, six will stay and two will be consigned to the depths by this unforgiving audience. <laughs> OK, girls, two must go. Come and get them! OK, the unmistakable voice of Chris Tarrant there introducing Man Oh Man. Carrie, I'm literally saying Man Oh Man that you've chosen this. Explain. Again, this is something that I watched when I was a teenager and I just thought it was the best thing ever. It was on a Saturday night. So it was kind of like a beauty pageant for men and the entire studio audience for women and people were eliminated through rounds and rounds and rounds and then losers would get shoved into this massive swimming pool. This is just fantastic Saturday night entertainment. Hugely sexist, obviously. Yeah, it was really bizarre. And again, hideously 90s in the way I can't imagine any other era ever doing this. Yeah, that really is the... That's all that happened. Absolute. They just shoved people into a swimming pool. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like we are the champions. But, but without Ron Pickering. But, yes, but it really is the kind of absolutely frazzled end of that whole lad ladette movement thing, which, like anything like that, it gets kind of airbrushed from history now that, you know, anything like that that happens, initially, it's not meant in a bad way. There's a sense of fun to it. There's a sense of liberation after, you know, years of adhering to whatever. And it became this absolute monster because, as usual, with anything like this the people that are espousing it early on you know are usually kind of like polite middle class kids who then think oh 
when it goes a bit bigger and they can't control what turns into quite a quite an unpleasant thing. And the whole lad and ladette thing went really unpleasant mm. when it went really big. And I think this was the absolute glowing embers of it. This was. I mean, the idea of getting Chris Tarrant in, it was kind of the, the late 70s idea of laddism, you know, it was presenting Tiss was. I, I appreciate it was a different thing then, but, you know, that's what this was founded on. Yeah. It, just, it didn't belong in the <laughs> mid-90s, I don't think. On any, I mean, the show itself wasn't too far off in some ways. It wasn't structured like Blind Date, but it reminded me of Blind Date. You know, oh, yeah, whole, yeah, yeah. And so on. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's very, I know that limped on into the 90s, that's a very 80s format. Everything about it it's outdated trying to cash in on the current trend and they just it's weird I mean they even didn't they give away a motorbike yeah, 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 they that's the main prize and that in itself <laughs> who looked at motorbikes as kind of a totem of cool in the midnight I mean possibly scooters because you know you had Oasis hairing round on them but yeah it wasn't really the aspirational prize if you know, people laugh at bullseye speedboats this wasn't that far off no, but you're right in that it's it's this mid very nailed on mid 90s view of what's cool as decided by generation of white men who are older than the people they're aiming it at so you've got chris tarrant as you who as you say is kind of a late 70s kind of lad but this kind of anarchic kind of sense about him but he kind of anchors it a little bit and gives it a certain sense of kind of avuncular seriousness i guess in a certain way because you know he's a proper presenter it's okay it's all under control it's only a bit of fun but then you get things like the motorbike being given away and you start to realize that yeah that this isn't being made by young women for young women. It's being made by a bunch of middle-aged men again for mid- for young women to watch on the Saturday night before they go out drinking. Well, some of that might be explained by the fact. Did you know much about the origins of Mano Man? I knew it was a format that had kind of come across Europe, but again, on looking this up, it was Reg Grundy and Crow Production, wasn't it? It was, and it ran for three years, which I was astonished by. I always pictured it as a thing that you know came and went, not even making it to the full series. It went on and on, but it originated on the legendary German satellite channel Sat One, which it feels weird talking about this now. At the time, it seemed different, but it was like an explosion of like psychedelic stuff, seventies horror, and soft porn presented as a you know an ordinary family channel. And it was what you put on after your parents had gone to bed if you had cable or satellite then, and watch all the the weird you know the video nasties that turn up. Blackadder dubbed into German. They would also have these weird game shows like there was one that was called Punked 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 which was kind of a, a more anarchic blankety blank there was a hidden camera show I remember where there was an old guy kind of Richard Wilson kind of guy doing stunts where I got the impression they were pausing and saying what happened next and he do things like he chainsawed through a fruit and veg stand oh Right. And it looked like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't staged. People looked horrified. <laughs> and it was a show that was basically kind of the stable mate to this, which is called Tutti Fruity, which I think is a name that will be legendary to anyone of a certain age, where they had male and female contestants who, if they lost a round, had to remove an item of clothing. Right. See, I've got no idea about this. I've never heard of it. I think Man O' Man came from the same stable as that. And I would imagine that probably in the Sat 1 version, which I don't remember seeing, there was probably a bit more going on than in the UK. <laughs> oh, I love the UK. We're so prudish. This is amazing. We have it on ITV on Primetime Saturday with Chris Tarrant. Those crazy Germans, they have it on satellite with nudity. OK. <laughs> it wasn't Chris Tarrant nudity, <laughs> which... No offence to him, but... That was about the same time as we had 
had Keith Chegwin nudity, though, so, you know. Yeah, satellite TV has got a lot to answer Doesn't for. it? We just listen to shock treatments a bit more. So we've, we've, we've gone round in a circle after starting talking about the glam metal detectives. So was Man O' Man kind of a good prelude to your nights out in the mid to late 90s? Well, again, I was probably a little bit too young, so I would have been probably about 15, 16 when this was on. So we would hang out, like me and my friends would hang out, and we would watch this on the Saturday night, and then we'd probably get a, a video out from Blockbuster afterwards or something like that. So, yeah, it was the kind of thing that we'd watch that was kind of silly and fun, and I guess that's the kind of age as well that we realise how silly boys are as well, so it's quite fun to see them being shoved in a swimming pool, which, again, is the memory that has lived with me. And as you say, ironically, it's the sort of thing that might have popped up between sketches in the glam metal detectives. <laughs> actually be funnier than some of the others. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I do apologise to the glam metal detectives if you listen, but you maybe hear your version of Crazy Horses, so you deserve <laughs> it. Carrie, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Not on your telly by Tim Worthington. From Fish to Fun to Ski Boy, the ultimate guide to the TV that time forgot. Find out more at timworthington.org. <laughs>